I invite you to turn with me to the Word of God as we find it in Genesis chapter 12. If you are visiting in our midst today or listening in, we have been doing a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Today we hope to focus on Galatians chapter 3, the verses 6 through 9. And in this passage, the apostle quotes from the book of Genesis from two different places. So we are going to read from Genesis as background before we get to our text So we will begin with Genesis chapter 12, the verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we turn to Genesis 15, the verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Last week we focused on verses 1 through 5. Today our text will be verses 6 through 9. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever seen words with a Christian meaning being used by people who are not Christians? One of those words is the word blessed. There are over 144 million posts on Instagram under hashtag blessed. Many people now use the word blessed who are not Christians at all. And they use the word blessed when what they really meant to say was lucky. It can even become a form of bragging. Sometimes people will spotlight their own accomplishments while they talk about being blessed. As one writer for the New York Times sarcastically put it a few years ago, quote, There's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. But calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. Blessed is now used to explain that coveted TED Talk invite as well as to celebrate your grandmother's 91st birthday, end quote. So there are many ways in which this word was misused. But are Christians any better? Do we use the word in the same way sometimes? And what does it really mean to be blessed? Our passage uses this word blessed two times, once in verse 8, once in verse 9, and then it says that those who are of faith are blessed. In other words, The people who are truly blessed in life are believers, the people of faith. Even if they never post anything to Instagram. It says this was true of Abraham, and it is true of you. Those who are of faith are blessed. It's true of Abraham, and it was true of you. Now, one thing that is often missed in this discussion is why we need God's blessing to begin with. If you look at it from a secular perspective, the word blessing often means success, like we saw before. You can have an ordinary life, and that's pretty good already. But when you add hashtag blessing or hashtag blessed, well, then, then it's extra special. So from that perspective, a blessing might seem like something optional. Believers get it. Everyone else can manage without it. But that is not how the Bible speaks about these things. Instead, it says that by nature, all people are separated from God, whether they think they are blessed or not. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, and he reminds them of what their life was like before. He says, 
you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In Colossians 1 verse 21, he writes that the Colossian Christians were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, he says that they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So think about that. This is our default setting. Apart from God, separated from Christ, alienated from God, by nature children of wrath. What this is telling us is that apart from God's grace, all people are estranged from God. That means they have no hope of salvation. They live without God. They are hostile to God. Therefore, they are under God's wrath. Jesus himself said this in in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Even if you live a life that is successful by worldly standards, even if you post thousands of entries under hashtag blessed, but you are under God's wrath, one day you will have to answer to him. And that is why God's blessing is so important. There is nothing, nothing more important than the blessing of God because of what the alternative is. The alternative is to face God's wrath over your sins. The alternative is primarily uh, is eternal death. So a blessing is primarily something relational. A blessing is God's assurance that all is well between God and the person being blessed. That's the primary meaning. Now, material prosperity can be an expression of God's blessing, but it should never be confused with the meaning of the blessing itself. And what's really remarkable, if you think about it, is that it was always God's intent to bless people. Already from the very beginning, in Genesis 1 verse 28, we read that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So God's intent was always to bless the people that he had created. And even after the Genesis flood, when he started over, so to speak, when the earth was again formless and void with water over the surface of the deep, he still blessed Noah and his family after they came out of the ark. Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a remarkable thing. Why should God do this? Why should God bless anybody at all after the fall into sin, after the flood, after all that has happened since then? When you read the Bible, it reads like a chronicle of human failure. Every time God blesses human beings, they turn away from Him. Every time He preserves a small remnant of people, and He continues with those Why does he do it? He does it because he is faithful to his promises. Already after the fall into sin, he had promised that one day a child would be born who would defeat the devil and his works. So he continued to preserve people for himself so that he could bring that blessing into the world. First it was the line of Seth. From that line he brought forth Noah. 
from Noah, he brought forth Shem, Han, and Japheth. And what you see every time is that God saves people, then most of those people turn away into sin and idolatry. Then God preserves a remnant of those people and he continues with them. But the Lord always has to do all the work. The Lord is the one who always has to preserve these people for himself. And that's how you end up with Abraham. Even Abraham had to be brought out of idolatry. Did you know that? At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua calls the people together and he says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So Abraham also did nothing to deserve God's blessing. Whether or not he was an idolater himself, he certainly had to be taken out of the place of idolatry. God had to take him out of an idolatrous community in order to shape him into the remnant through which he could bring the promised Messiah into the world. But what a weak remnant it was. We read in Genesis 15 that Abraham was childless. He was old by then already, quite old. It had been quite a few years since Genesis 12. The promised child had not yet been born. So far, Abram had not been able to fulfill the promise that God had made to him, that, that a great nation would come from him. Abraham cannot bring these promises into effect in his own life. He cannot bring them to pass. God has to work out his promises through human weakness. And that weakness is exemplified in Abraham and Sarah's inability to conceive a child. Now, maybe you can relate to this in your own life. Maybe you have struggled to conceive a child or struggled to conceive another child after the first one and nothing is happening. Or maybe it has always been very difficult for you to do this. Maybe you've even consulted experts in the field. You followed all their advice religiously, but nothing came of it then you have a bit of a sense of what it was like for Abraham. As long as the promise depends on him, this is where it ends. Yet it is in that very weakness that God comes to him in Genesis 15 and makes another promise. Now it's not just a general promise that a nation will be born from him. Now it's the promise that his very own son will be his heir. God is the one who comes to him. God is the one who makes this promise to him. God is the one who will bless him. And this is our salvation, for apart from God, there is no blessing. God is the one who spoke. When he decrees, what he decrees, no one will undo. What he speaks, no one will contradict. What he decides, no one can reverse. God alone can bless. Now remember again that a blessing in, in essence is a statement of relationship. You have to understand that blessings and curses both are a statement of relationship. A blessing should never be understood only in material terms. The relationship is always greater than the effects that it produces. So you can never conclude from someone's circumstances whether that person is blessed by God or not. After all, the wicked often do well, and the righteous don't. 
The wicked are rich and the righteous are poor. Often, not always, but often. There are many psalms in the Bible that, that, that question this, that ask the Lord, why is it this way? But the Bible tells us that circumstances alone are not a reliable gauge. It always has to come down to what God says. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. What is this righteousness? Well, righteousness simply means to measure up to a standard. That's what righteousness is. Everything around us is, is made according to a standard. This building, for example, is, has been built according to certain standards. This building complies with the Australian co- building code and the specific instances of that code as they're used in Western Australia. It's built according to a standard And righteousness is like that as well. To be counted righteous in the eyes of God means to to live up to his standard. To be counted as someone who lives up according to the standard. So God's declaration of righteousness is the most important thing that you could ever receive. But now we're reading from Genesis 15 says something radical. It says, to receive this righteousness, this was not the, something because of something that Abraham did. It says Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. Now you might wonder, how is that possible? How is it possible that believing in this promise was counted as righteousness? Even from our perspective as Reformed people, we, we can understand that faith in Christ is counted as righteousness. But how can faith in the promise of a son be counted as righteousness? Why does the Apostle Paul take this particular text and use that to prove to the Galatians that only those who are of faith are blessed? Faith in the promise of a child is not the same thing as faith in God. So how, how is this possible? Is, uh, how can Paul do this legitimately? Well, to answer that question, we need to think about what faith is. Faith is not just any conviction regarding God. Lots of people believe all sorts of things about God. That's not faith, not true faith. True faith is always a response to God's specific promises. Think of the definition of faith in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. So Abraham accepts what God has revealed to him. Abraham takes God at his word. And the word of God did not come to Abraham only or first in Genesis 15. God's word first came to him in Genesis 12. Every promise that God makes to Abraham afterwards is an elaboration on or an expansion of that main promise that he made at the beginning. And Paul shows that same pattern actually in Galatians 3. Chronologically, you would have expected him to to start with, with Genesis 12 and then go to 15 in his argumentation, but he doesn't do that. Did you notice? He reverses them. 
He starts with Genesis 15 and then goes back to 12 because that's how it worked for Abraham as well. He goes back to the key promise. This promise reflects God's intent for the world. God's intent is to bless the world. And he says to Abraham, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Why does God want to do this? Why is God still so determined to promise this kind of blessing in a world that is so broken by sin? And it is because he is gracious. He is not going to abandon the work of his hands. He is going to reassert his rule in the face of sin. He's going to reestablish his dominion in the face of evil. He's going to reclaim the world that is his, and he is going to use human beings to do it. Specifically, he's moving towards the one person, the coming Christ himself, the one who is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. You see, what God promised to Abram was a royal blessing. It was a blessing that could only ultimately be realized to its fullest extent in Christ. And Abraham is already being drawn into the orbit of that blessing. As surely as an asteroid is, is drawn around a sun, he's being drawn up in God's intent to bring about the greatest blessing of all, which is righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. There's no greater blessing that you can have in your life than that. God has told Abram that he is going to bring the ultimate source of blessing into the world. That can only be the Messiah. There's no other ultimate source of blessing greater than that. That can only be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So, to answer the question, when Abraham believed God, he did not just believe the promise of a son in the sense that it applied to him personally. He believed in the larger context of that promise. That is to say, he believed what God promised him in Genesis 15 because he believed what God promised in Genesis 12. He believed God would give him a son because he believed that God would bless the world. Abram believed the greater promise, and that is why he believed the lesser promise. Now, how do we know that this is true? That this is what Abraham believed? How do you know it's true? Because Jesus said so himself. In John 8, verse 56, he's speaking to the Jews. And he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was glad because he knew that God would bless all people through his descendant. He knew that his descendant would be the only hope for the world. In other words, he believed that salvation could only ever come from God. And that is the essence of faith. He saw that God was bringing this about and he was glad. The only difference between Abraham and you is that Abraham believed in the Christ who was to come. And you believe in the Christ who has already come. Abraham believed in the promise that would be fulfilled. You believe in the promise that has been fulfilled. John Calvin Put it this way once, he said, the patriarchs participated in the same inheritance and hoped for a common salvation with us by the grace of the same mediator. So both Abraham and us hoped for a common salvation. God used Abraham to bring that Christ, the source of salvation, into the world. Through Christ, you can have redemption. Through Christ, you can have the forgiveness of sins 
Because Jesus Christ died for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the gospel. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So do you understand now how, how fundamentally wrong Paul's opponents were? We've been hearing a lot about Paul's opponents in Galatians. They had a totally different view on Abraham. To them, Abraham's faith was primarily defined by law-keeping. You might say, well, the law didn't come until Moses. Didn't they see that 400 years later? But, you know, the rabbi said, Abram was such a holy man that he kept the law already before it was even given. They said he was so holy, he had kept the law before it was handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, so they were saying, they were telling the Galatian Christians, of course, of course you can become a, a son of Abraham just like us. All the nations will, will come before God one day, so yes, you can become a son of Abraham like us, and you can do that by keeping the Jewish laws. And the first law is circumcision. These were given to Abraham's descendants. If you want to be a descendant of Abraham, then you should be circumcised and place yourself under the entirety of the Old Testament law. But Paul is going further than that in his argument in, in Galatians chapter 3. He's saying, look, we need to go back further than the law. If you go back far enough, you see that this is not just about Abraham. The promise that God made was a promise that he made to the whole world. It was a promise that Abraham accepted by faith long before he was circumcised. So yes, you can become a son of Abraham by being circumcised but you will be a son only according to the flesh. And a true son of Abraham goes further than that. A true son of Abraham shares in his faith. And that applies not just to the sons, of course, but also to the daughters. It's, it's inclusive. Those who are of faith are blessed with no qualifications. Those who are of faith are blessed those who are of faith are blessed. It was true of Abraham. But let us now see how it is true of you. Why are those of faith blessed? Paul says in verse 9, those of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Why does he say that? Well, the reason why those of faith are blessed is because God counts those who believe as being righteous. And like we saw earlier, we have no righteousness of our own. God has to give it to us. Faith is the way in which we receive it. And again, you have to get this right in your head. Faith is not just any thought that we might have of God. Faith is a specific response to the promises that God made to us. Promises that were signed and sealed in our baptism. We receive the same blessing as Abraham by receiving those very same promises. You see, Abram was looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. 
And remember, when God blesses someone, he says, all is well between himself and, and this person. And that blessing comes through Jesus Christ. Because unlike Abraham, Jesus did live a perfect life. He never sinned. He was crucified by the people who hated him. And that was how he obtained the blessing. His death was a payment for sins. Scripture says that we need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. And it's when we believe in him, when we count on his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone to take away our guilt, then God counts us as righteous. That is saving faith. Then God credits us with righteousness. Then everything that Jesus has done becomes ours in faith. His perfect life, his perfect obedience becomes ours. And the Lord takes away all of our sins. Then we are truly blessed. Then God says it is well between me and you. God alone can do that. And because he alone can save, therefore we know that when he saves, it is complete. There is nothing you can add to it. All you can do is believe. All you need to do is have faith. Faith is enough because faith unites us to Christ. Faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. You remember that from the catechism. So what does that mean? It means that the history of God's people in the Bible is a lot closer to you than you realize. It means that Abraham is your father as well. Did you realize that? Abraham is your father. Why? Because, says Paul, those of faith are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. There's only one way to be righteous. There's only one way to share in the righteousness that Abraham had. There's only one way to be included, and that is through faith. Abram was a godly man. You should not forget that. We, we can focus a lot on, on his shortcomings, but Abraham was a godly man. He was a, a good man in the human sense of the word. The Jews considered him to be a very virtuous person. Abraham was obedient to all that God had told him to do. But none of those things that he did, none of his obedience counted as righteousness. If it had, God would have said so. Then those would have been credited as righteousness as well. But the righteousness he received did not come from works. It came from faith. Faith leaves us nothing of our own to stand on. Those who are of faith are blessed. But that blessing in its entirety from beginning to end is a work of God. Faith by its very nature has to leave out all human accomplishments. Faith is against works. Faith is against reason. Not against reason in the sense that you stop thinking, but against reason in the sense that your mind does not have the last word. Because everything that God promises by human, everything that God promises is absurd by human standards. By the standards of our own reason. Think about it. Think about how crazy this is that an old couple would have a son. That this son would have descendants who will turn into a great nation. 
that one of those descendants will be the Messiah, that he will save the world. None of this fits within the parameters of human reasoning. It's foolishness to the world. It's not the sort of thing that we can accept by logic alone. You need faith. In that sense, faith is beyond reason. Faith is even beyond hope. Abram believed despite everything contradicting his faith, despite all that threatened to extinguish his hope. You think about it. His, his wife and he were barren. They were one family in a foreign country. They had left everything behind, all the support networks of family and friends, and yet they had hope. For us too, faith goes beyond hope, despite temptations, despite difficulties, despite miseries, despite assaults on our faith, we believe God's promises, forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. So faith brings glory to God. Faith brings glory to God because it goes beyond all that is human. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once put it this way. He said, quote, Faith attributes glory to God, which is the highest thing that can be attributed to Him. To attribute glory to God is to believe in Him, to regard Him as truthful, wise, righteous, merciful, and almighty. In short, to acknowledge Him as the author and donor of every good. Reason does not do this, but faith does. End quote. So this is the faith that brings glory to God and is pleasing to Him. And this is why self-willed worship of any kind is so evil. It is evil. Any man-made religion, any work performed for merit is fundamentally a rejection of what God says about Himself. No matter how pious it may seem, no matter how sanctified it may appear, it is a rejection in essence, fundamentally, of what God has said about himself. Because it does not see him as the gracious, generous God who declares people righteous through faith alone. It does not take him at his word when it says that he is merciful and gracious. It does not regard him as the great promise keeper. Instead, it assumes that he is angry and must be satisfied somehow. That is the very opposite of faith. That is a rejection of Christ. You can't have it halfway. It is either all or none. No matter how pious such a person is, he or she should not expect God's blessing. Why not? Because it is approaching God on your own terms. The Jews in the days of Jesus did this. They were people who tried to approach God on their own terms. And Jesus said to them, you are not children of Abraham. Listen to me. You are not, he says, children of Abraham. All you're his physical descendants. All you men were circumcised, but you are not children of Abraham. You don't belong. You are, he says, drawing it out to its logical alternative. You are children of the devil. Can you imagine being a religious leader in your community, having devoted your whole life to this and being told by the Son of God himself that you are a child of the devil. 
This is serious. That's the alternative. You're either a son of Abraham or a son of the devil, but there is no middle ground. There never was. So what do you believe? Do you believe God's promises? Do you personally take him at his word? Do you respond to what he says? Do you cherish his blessing? Remember what what we saw at the beginning. A blessing is God's assurance that all is well between us and God. That's the primary meaning. Health and material prosperity can be an expression of God's blessing, but it should never be confused with the blessing itself. God's blessing is something much greater than that. It's a promise that all is well between us and Him. It is a guarantee that nothing will separate us from His love. It is His assurance that He is with us in all our troubles, no matter what they are. So we are always blessed, even if we have trouble, even if we have sickness, even if we have disease. That is worth more than anything in this whole world. It may not be trendy. It's probably not what you put on Instagram, but it outlasts all fads and fashions. God's blessing will last forever because it is the promise of the presence of God himself. Those who are of faith are blessed. It was true of Abraham. May it be true of us as well. Amen.